Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 101. This is part two of a three-part conversation. We'll start out talking about religion and skepticism, my own sort of issues with skepticism. We'll also talk about what science can and can't do for us, especially in the context of the COVID situation. <laughs> Whether you want to call it epidemic, pandemic, or plague, I prefer the term plague myself. What science can uh, do for us and what it can't in terms of decision making. It can give us information, it can't make the decisions for us, even though in many cases we pretend as if it can. That's one of the many drawbacks of we call scientism as opposed to science itself science itself is beautiful i'm a scientist i am probably not biased on that subject but i think science is beautiful scientism the idea that science can do all kinds of things that science is it's it's, it's a method of inquiry it, it brings us to facts it doesn't uh, it doesn't give us any moral framework with which to work with those facts it doesn't it doesn't engineer for us it doesn't design for us and it doesn't make moral choices for us. So anyway, with all that said, let's go ahead and uh, get right back into it. I am very skeptical down to my, like, I will question things. Right. And so, you know, there are some ways in which, I mean, it's, and it's, it's like the same reaction I have talking to Stephen Barr, many, or uh, Jonathan Lunin and, and a number of other people, the Society of Catholic Scientists, like, oh, I never questioned religion. I always thought they were compatible. I'm like, I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still right. do. <laughs> yeah, I still have difficulty with it. It's still too much for me to hope for a lot of days, or at least a lot of hours, or a lot of minutes, anyway, the very least. Well, um, you know, uh, that that uh, segues into um, the latest nice insight I, I've gotten into something that you and I are always uh, talking about, namely, uh, you know, what goes wrong in the teaching or at least learning of science and religion in Catholic high schools, for instance. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, uh, one person summed it up, I thought, rather nicely that um, uh, in in religion classes, uh, uh, a lot of kids at least feel they're not being taught to seek God. They're having God kind of forced down their, uh, you know, throats or whatever and uh and seeking god in individual circumstances and in 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 one's individual life is an endlessly fascinating and joyful and meaning giving Mm -hmm. experience but the kids don't don't get a sense of that right yeah Um, i mean i mean in in a way it's a privilege you know i look at my own life and and i just got i just got enough tidbits and it's kind of yeah so my my brother and my sister-in-law are going through this little drama where you know they their their eldest is 6 she's going to kindergarten and she's got <laughs> oh boy I, I, yeah. it would be it would be fascinating to have Darsha Narvez sort of you know come in or or preferably just sort of silently watch them without them knowing that she's there I um, think all of us feel that way about uh, people and, and watch their watch their life and see what insights she would have about things they could perhaps change. But in any case, um, right? Her, their 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 eldest is six, and she's had some difficulties in kindergarten, and some of it they think is 
somewhat to do with the fact that, I mean, they're, so they're in the richest county in Kentucky. Uh huh. And the public schools there are really good. And so it is a extreme struggle for Catholic schools to try to survive. So there is one Catholic school on the border of the county that Louisville itself is in, which is, of course, very poor. Right. Um, so I think they must get some, some number of students from across the county line to escaping Jefferson County public schools. Um, but in Oldham County, it's, it's kind of rough. Um, and yeah. so they're they're and they're just like, they just have, have come reluctantly to the decision that they're going to send her to the public school next year, which is already where her mother works. Oh. Um, is like at the, is at the middle school next door to their closest elementary school. So, and of course me, I had exactly one year of Catholic grade school. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. So, and of course yeah. my, my best memories are from my, my little tiny rural public school, which is unfortunately long since closed and torn down. And speaking uh, of things that I'm irritated and mourn over and regret and a little angry about, there's one of them. Um, well, because it was a really good school with really good teachers. And I certainly learned a lot and it was, it was, it was val very valuable for me, my experience there. But I went to the school in town for one year and it's true though, that that opened my eyes to aspects, intellectual aspects of the Catholic faith. It sowed some seeds at the time that mm -hmm. I don't think sprouted until later. It gave me an awareness of things that would take a few years for me to start following up on. And by that point, you know, I was in the, you know, rural public high school and, you know, and was just, I was searching out, like you're saying, I'm, I was seeking God. I was not having it forced down my throat. In fact, mm -hmm. I was kind of irritated at how shallow our um, religious education was in high school and, <laughs> you know, would, would bring my own sort of, results of my own reading and researches, you know, occasionally when I just couldn't stand it anymore because I'm pretty conflict diverse, but uh, a classroom is a setting where I could at least somewhat uh, overcome my dividends and say, Hey, there's this really interesting stuff that we're glossing over here. Things gosh. of that nature. Yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. It's uh, uh, different, uh, different kinds of schools have vastly different effects on on different people and sometimes the effect of a catholic school is just not right for a particular person at a particular time in their life yeah well and it or at depends least it's on, inferior to the experience of a public school it depends on the catholic school it depends on the teacher it depends on the student it's just life is awfully yeah. complex oh my goodness yes and 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 today's parents understandably everything else is so complex uh they can they they certainly dearly wish that uh, at least the choice of a school for their kids could be could be Easier. simple yeah but it's not no oh. Uh, oh. wow I, somebody's gonna have to come up with the, the definitive name for what we're going through right now it's uh, the pandemic it's the COVID-19 crisis it's this mm -hmm. that and the, it's the distancing uh but uh, it's uh it's no doubt a pivot uh point and and you know it's gonna it's gonna be in the chapters of the history books and what are I we think. going to pivot to yeah and what are we going to pivot to? Exactly. Yeah. But it's so clearly, uh, you know, it's a nice moment in time to, to, to hook on to. And maybe historians are skeptical yeah. of such clear moments in time because they see trends before and after uh, wisely. Yeah. But, it's uh, amazing <laughs> in retrospect now to think about, boy, you know, how, how little did we ever hear in school about the Spanish flu? 
Indeed. Yes. Which is, of course, apparently, apparently that's that's discriminatory towards Spaniards to call it the Spanish flu. But I'm sorry. That's the only knowing I know for it. That, right. We have to we have to deal with the names that uh, things have been given. Uh, it, uh, yeah. Uh, and apparently there, somebody did say that uh, that that was a kind of fake news uh, kind or at least a, a, a not a, a perfectly well-informed reason for giving it that name. The, the, the king of Spain came down with the flu. Uh-huh. And that and that lines in days. Right, and right. So it well, and it's like, okay, okay. So on that basis, I'm sure anyone ever thought, okay, people are among the hundreds of millions of people who, you know, have thought about it. Yes, people are so strange. Somebody probably thought poorly of Spaniards because of the name Spanish flu. Um, but it was uh, a rounding error and not worth worrying about. And I, I like that. don't see right. likewise that calling you know anything you know about this current disease you know any name related to china or to wuhan or anything else is going to have any significant effect whatsoever Uh, correct yeah it's not going to have right that's that's like the reaction of an extremely brittle authoritarian state you know extremely jealous of its own reputation because of its fundamental insecurities and and it's you know and it's apologists abroad. I'm just I'm not impressed with that at all. Uh, no, I, I I agree. And um, uh, uh, we we have a who is ultimately a uh, a salesman uh, who sees things in the light of his own experience. And uh, oh yeah, the, and that's that's uh, not str- an argument for if, uh, yeah, that's not an <laughs> argument for anybody on the other side of the debate either. But yeah, yeah. no, that's oh well, oh well. Of course, every uh, boy, uh, every word it seems is weaponized uh, by somebody. So we should oh, be yeah. surprised. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, people who accuse uh, uh, Trump of weaponizing words uh, should uh, you know uh, people people should, in glass uh, houses, etc., etc. Right? Et yes. <laughs> Yes. yes, there are a few great scriptural references to uh, uh-huh. that uh, error. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. But so so that was one thing. Just the uh, uh, the importance of uh, all people kind of observing the the difference between uh, science and religion, but also the very necessary compatibility of them. If we're going to solve the kinds of problems that uh, today's uh, pandemic uh, crisis is is pointing out and challenging us to. Uh, more more closely, and in a sense, I am I am concerned that um, after you know we're, we're going to be so eager to get back to normal, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. that we're 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 not going to do the proper pondering and the and yeah. the proper uh, uh, you know yeah. the exercise and, and change the conversion. Yeah. And I apologize for going down a rabbit hole about the Spanish flu earlier, but I had an actual point no, there, which that's is to say fu- yeah, that you're right. it's, it's a footnote in the history books, and it's, it surely seems like it must be, it must have been a footnote to the degree that it is because it happened in the shadow of World War I and, and was just Correct. overwhelmed by that. And so yes. while at the moment people run around with seeming to be as traumatized by Donald Trump as they were by World War One. I. I I don't yeah. think that attitude will survive long term. And He's so got, this yeah. so this epidemic, this disease, this plague, I prefer the term plague personally. I I, I like if, if there's it's an old existing word. classic, yeah, word with with you know more heft to it than a newly coined uh word, then I'll, I'll always revert to that if I can. But the you know well, the history but looking back on this plague without that magnitude of an event to overshadow it will be interesting. 
Yes, yes. And uh, so well, and it came and it dropped on an era. Like, I, I don't think people in, you know, people in the early 20th century were used to infectious diseases killing people. No. And we're not. Right. right. Not in anything like the same way. No, no. This is a totally, totally new kind of experience for most people alive today. Yeah. Uh, Definitely it, for it, me. Uh, yeah. 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 Ironically, um, it's, uh, it was, the, it's the same kind of existential the Spanish flu was the same kind of existential experience that people uh, fighting uh, World War One uh, were having over there with uh, the the horrors of the mustard gas and and all of these things that were you know uh, killing people on a huge scale in mysterious unseen ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, you were getting hit by I, shells from mortars that were two miles or three miles away or something like yes, that. I mean, it was it must yes, have just have been absolutely insane. Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, the world did not seem to come out of World War One, having learned a whole lot of useful long term lessons. I, uh, I, I'm not an informed judge about such things, but I don't, it, it but I don't think World that's War going out on too soon. Yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> think you can, that's going out on much of a historical limb there to say that there were less unlearned lessons from World War One. Yeah. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, uh, that, that was one thing. And then, yeah. So the conflict between, oh, the conflict between science and philosophy, which, which Pat pointed out, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the conflict between science and, and, uh, religion. And one of you, you, you then said, uh, well, there's just as much a conflict between science and philosophy, but my immediate instinct on that was I, again, I'm not an informed uh, critic of uh, the current state of philosophy, but what I've heard about a lot of trends in philosophy is that philosophy has to some degree unilaterally surrendered uh, in that conflict uh, because isn't a lot of philosophy now kind of geared toward mathematics and uh, logic and uh, you know, uh, the, the kinds of things that um, would not have arisen in a jurisprudence class or in a, uh, you know, or even in a philosophy of uh, sci science class or even in uh, Plato or Aristotle studies. Uh, it, it's it's uh, at, the, at, at its cutting edge levels. It's now kind of a scientific exercise itself. Isn't it? Um, well, and, and see, I don't see that as a bad thing that that is absorbing some degree of philosophical talent. I think there are absolutely fundamental questions to be explored there. I mean, I think the ah. problem is, is that philosophy and natural science got unmoored from each other, you know, in the 17th or at least the 18th centuries you know, as, as people progressed into, you know, on the, you know, philosophy, there, there's this horrible bifurcation. I mean, they were, they were just, they were just parts of the same natural science. I mean, it was natural philosophy, you know, in the, right. in the 17th century. Um, it was just right. the branch of philosophy that deals with natural objects. And so, and I don't know that Newton, I, you know, never actually tried to go and read Newton's Principia. It's one of the many, many, many things I would like to do. Um, and of course, it's written in Latin, and I actually went to the trouble of learning Latin. I don't know. It'd be it'd be intriguing mm -hmm. to see what what that style of Latin uh, came off like. Um, mm. And of course, it'd be awfully awkward because he didn't have the uh, mathematical symbolism that we have now. That didn't evolve. You know, it really came into being with Euler in the 18th century. 
um, and has been refined since, like probably even Euler, I would have a difficult time reading. Um, but but be, be all that as it may, I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, Descartes, who was, of course, a great figure in mathematics, um, mm -hmm. and actually uh, Newton got some of his, you know, momentum from really putting a lot of effort into digesting Descartes' Logical and Three, but... Um, but so at the same time, he introduces this radical skepticism and the attempt, the fateful attempt to establish philosophy off of the cogito ergo sum, and then and then desperately trying to find a way to justify belief in any reality outside my own mind, which right. you know Kant and Hume, and then you know and then Berkeley and and you know all these people you know is. I mean, philosophy just went out in the woods and had two, three, four hundred years of what, again, like I, I think I've said before, um, if you go back to Etienne Gilson back in the early 20th century assessing in, in his book about like, you know, methodology of realist philosophy or something like that. Um, it's just, and, and, you know, and this is, again, it's, it's an interpretation of mine on top of that. It's, it's this vast, it's an experiment. It was mm. a, or, or in mathematical terms, it was a reductio ad absurdum, mm. a long, laborious reductio ad absurdum proof that like, if you, if you start off with just this, you're going to get gibberish. You're mm -hmm. going to have to do all this work to establish, to justify your belief in a reality outside your own mind. Um, mm. And you're going to wind up a solipsist or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. And you simply yes. have to accept the second axiom that nope, I am just part of reality and I'm getting some kind of valuable information about it through my senses. Right. Right. And that's, you just, you just have to accept that and go on. And so yeah. I think we've, I think we mentioned Bertrand Russell a little bit. I was actually, yeah, well, you, yes, you did just yeah. a little bit. And I don't know I that I ever got around him. I don't even think I got around to mentioning. So Bertrand Russell is a character that I read about in my books about the history of mathematics that I read when I was a teenager. Huh. And so I really knew and even today don't know very, know very little about him as a philosopher, but what stuck with me is this poignant, poignant anecdote, I guess, from his memoirs where he's talking, he's discussing being, you know, pretty young. He was of course, mathematical prodigy, um, which, you know, gives me a lot to sympathize with. Um, but his mm. older brother was teaching him Euclid was teaching him Euclid's mm -hmm. elements, which, you know, in the, the late 19th, early 20th century was still, I mean, it still really is. I don't think modern textbooks have improved on it a lot. Um, they've done different things. They've tried different things. There's probably some complementary approach. But in any case, so he starts out with Euclid. And of course, and so Bertrand Russell's response to this whole thing is, I had heard that Euclid had proved things. So I was really kind of excited. But then he starts out with his list of assumptions. And I don't want anything to do with that. I wanted him to prove stuff to me. Right, and, my, right. and all my brother said was, if you don't accept these, we can't go on. And so grudgingly, I accepted them. I'm like, that to me sounds like it explains a lot about Bertrand Russell in a very compact uh, anecdote. Like uh, that, that's, that's the atheist attitude. I mean, and I have that. I sympathize with that. It's impossible. Well, yeah, yeah. It puts yeah. you in a completely impossible situation because of course you have to accept you have to have some axioms before you start exactly. Exactly. constructing proofs. You have to have something to work with. Right. You know, there's, there's, and, but that's, I, I think, on some level, for a lot of people, whether it's you know, visible in their minds or not, or whether it's lurking below the surface, there is that. There is that problem. 
and that yeah. that that you know and that infected philosophy for centuries and i'm sure still does it infects right. people you know people you know the problem is is that we have an imperfect version of that so scientism is a really imperfect version of that where mm. you've buried that under the surface and you use it as a weapon unconsciously against things like religion yes um or spirituality in any form but then you refuse to use that tool against materialism which is also you know which is if anything shoddier and less you know less robust right um and you wind up with a whole bunch of you know incommensurable stuff in your you know in your belief set like on the one hand i i say that i'm a materialist and i want science to prove everything and yet on the same at the same token i believe in stuff like you know like like transgenderism which i you know i want to be really careful in talking about that those people are in pain yes yes and the problem is is that we have this it, it doesn't make any sense for the for the answer to their pain to be to crudely make over their bodies into a facsimile of the opposite sex, unless there is something that transcends the material somehow that they're somehow locked into. I mean, on the materialist level, it breaks down like on a materialist level, it breaks down like this. You think what you think because your neurons are wired in a specific manner. So if your neurons are wired in a specific manner that you have a male body, but you want to have a female body, you've got two choices. You can either take the entire rest of your body and try to turn it into a facsimile of a, a female body. That's all we can do with our current technology. That's all we'll right. be able to do for a long time. Or we right. can try to rewire the neurons so that you no longer want a different body than what you have. Right. Do, are we putting any effort into the second option? Because it'd probably be a lot simpler. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's and, a solely materialistic. I don't see how you, a, a straight materialist could get out of that. I don't know where you mm. could possibly turn unless, I mean, it, it just becomes a question of efficiency. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's yeah. how people like Steven Pinker, who is, you know, who has no idea, you know, just like any more than Bertrand Russell did, understands religion not at all. But he's at least able to see logical inconsistencies in his own sort of secularist camp where, you know, which he talks about in the, in the blank slate, which is, you know, the first third of it at least is an interesting book. Right. Right. When it's, it's, there's rampant inconsistency Uh on, you know, in the, in that sort of broad coalition. Yes. And at least there are a few people who are willing to, you know, and of course conservatives, there's rampant inconsistency. That's, that's another can of worms we we could open if you want to. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's every, it's a part of human nature. Uh, the and of course, uh, people like uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, seized on the fact that uh, well, uh, paradox and mystery uh, must be part of reality because they're so darn common. Uh, it's not our right. own confusion that's leading to these paradoxes; right. they're just there, and and the key is to come to accept them. Uh, yeah and embrace them in some sense because they make the uh, truth and reality even more interesting and more yeah. multi-layered. Uh, ultimately yeah. they give us more freedom rather than uh, limiting our uh, freedom or limiting our uh, thought processes. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people today don't see that. Yes, they adopt uh, uh, scientism partly because they don't think, uh, you know, the scientists, science is not as 
vulnerable to paradox. But actually, wouldn't as a scientist, wouldn't you say science is just as no, um, if, if you uh, think science, if if you think science is not vulnerable to paradox, you know nothing about quantum physics. You know nothing yes. about relativity. I mean, yes. in a, in a universe where black holes exist, I mean, and the thing about it is, is that you know relativity is kind of out there, right. but quantum physics is everything. I mean, it's everything. It's yeah. chemistry. It's every single bit of chemistry, and therefore every single bit of biology. On the on, at the perspective of you know why are why are do these molecules transmit this information from generation to generation? Why do they replicate themselves and do all these things and construct all these things so that I can have this you know little vase of red and yellow tulips that looks like the Fourth of July on my on my kitchen table? Right. You know it all. None of that. You know there there can't be color. There can't be you know chemical materials that have different colors uh, without quantum physics and quantum physics makes no sense i mean quantum physics yeah. is nothing but paradox fascinating yeah and yet uh, when i speak with some of these purdue professors uh the 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 uh, uh trend in um future computer development is uh quantum computing uh, you bet it computing. is yeah 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 that's what we're trying it's, it's, to trying desperately yeah. to do yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that's and it it's it's in danger of being the kind of fusion power of the information technology era. Yeah, um, you know, it's we hope we have good reason to believe we can get it done, but on the other hand, we had good reason to believe that we could get fusion reactors done. And and in both cases, I mean, it's not like the idea of fusion energy is dead, but gosh, doesn't it take? It's just going to take a staggering amount of overall resource outlay. Yeah. Um, to get to the point where we've domesticated, where we've learned what we need to learn in order to get that to work. And the same thing is probably true of quantum computing. I mean, I have heard that Honeywell, of all companies, it's yeah. intriguing. Good for them. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad it's not Google, actually, or, or right, Apple right. or something. Um, but they actually are going to be selling time on a commercial quantum computer. And it's going to be the quantum computer version of like ENIAC, right? So, yeah. you know, the original digital computers were rooms and fortresses full of, yeah. of vacuum tubes, right? That's so right. So the, the qubits that we have now are, you know, atoms trapped in, or they're either superconducting junctions or they're atoms trapped in other, you know, other hypercold conditions. Um, and they just, they, they just require such an immense amount of refrigeration apparatus in order to get them to work really? properly. You know, this is not going to be a desktop computer until we figure out whatever the equivalent of the transistor is, which is research Indeed. I actually right. want to try to get involved with. That's what I'm trying to do. Gee, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, that's data so science. If you can, uh, it's again, once again, the solid state solution would be a hell of a lot easier if we could if we could just find a semiconductor that works at room temperature, at the very least at liquid nitrogen temperature, which is a lot right. easier to handle than four Kelvin liquid helium or even lower than that, which is, I think, where a lot of this stuff, you know, the existing quantum computing technology only works in that paradigm right now. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Just like we well, have fusion reactors that will fuse things, but we don't we don't get that positive energy out of them. Right. We can't build fusion power plants. Uh, yeah, we yeah, can't actually yeah. build a power plant yet. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. 
For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.